Good evening, Australia, and hello to the rest of the world, wherever you happen to be joining us from. Thank you for coming on to Under the Wire, your home for censored and suppressed information about vaccinations and health. My name is Meryl Dory, and I welcome you here from the Australian Vaccination Risks Network, uh, which has been in existence since 1994 to support and inform our members uh, about all issues surrounding vaccination and uh, their effects on health. Now, tonight I am very, very lucky to have been speaking with a wonderful doctor by the name of Jane Orient, who I've been following for well over 20 years. Hello, Nicole. Uh, and I have a pre-recorded interview with her, which I will bring you shortly. I just wanted to bring out a few important uh, things before I start the interview. So I hope you'll bear with me. It won't take long. Um, first off, those of you who joined us last week on Under the Wire, I was supposed to start a virtual Vaxxed bus tour today, Wednesday, uh, for people who are telling stories about the uh, reactions and deaths following the COVID shot. And we've had a couple of those stories in the last couple of days, but we've had a huge problem on our website and it is still not completely uh, fixed. So we have put off the tour until Monday. Anyone who has had a reaction, anyone who knows someone who's had a reaction, please send them to our website, avn.org.au. Click on the link that I've circled here, or you can just click on the image of the Vaxxed bus, either one, they'll both work, and book in to tell your story. From Monday, I am going to be available seven days a week to um, talk to people who are telling these stories about vaccination harm and vaccination death after the COVID shots. It doesn't matter what brand of shot, whatever you're talking about with COVID shots, we would like to speak with you. So please don't delay. Do that now because we've already got quite a few of these spots filled and I can only talk to one person at a time. So uh, please come on and uh, book in your time to tell about what happened following the COVID shot. Uh, it's very, very important. We are seeing huge numbers of reactions in Australia and unfortunately some deaths. Now, this is the latest report from the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia. It shows that there have been 425 reports of deaths uh, following the COVID shot and only seven of them the TGA says, are linked with the COVID shot. Now, as far as I know, none of these people were autopsied. So what in the world is the TGA going on to say that these deaths did not occur because of the vaccine? Isn't it amazing that any death within 28 days of a positive diagnosis for COVID is considered a death from COVID, even if the person died in a motorcycle accident, but deaths that occur within hours or days of a COVID jab in a formerly perfectly healthy person are somehow deemed not to be connected. There are 46,000 adverse event notifications that have been re received by the TGA since the 22nd of February. And they say that 12 million um, jabs have been administered. And we know that that is much higher than the actual number of jabs, which would make the risk of um, an adverse event and the risk of death much, much higher if we had the real number of doses administered rather than the number of doses that were distributed but never actually injected into anyone. Um, this is the figure from the United States as of the 30th of July. This is COVID uh, vaccine reactions only, and it's from OpenVares, openvares.com, and then click on the COVID vaccine data link. They have reported over 12,366 deaths. And a couple of weeks ago, a whistleblower came forward and said on one of the other systems that the American government maintains, 45,000 deaths were reported in addition to this. And even so, those deaths only represent between 1% and 10% of the actual number of deaths. 46,000 hospitalizations, 
545,000 reports of adverse reactions. And you can see the breakdown here, 1,381 miscarriages reported. Why anyone would give one of these untested experimental genetic modification devices to a pregnant woman is beyond me. It is a crime against humanity. 5,236 heart attacks, 3,728 cases of myocarditis or pericarditis, 14,000 people permanently disabled, 2,269 cases of thrombocytopenia or low platelet, 12,000 life-threatening reactions, 23,000 severe allergic or anaphylactic reactions, and most interestingly, 7,500 cases of shingles, which is also being reported in Australia. Multiply all of these by 10 to 100 times and you will get closer to the actual number of reactions and deaths that are taking place. Now, just to compare the risk from the shots with the risks from COVID. This is from the health.gov website, and it is the number of deaths associated in Australia with COVID-19, with COVID-19, not from COVID-19, okay? So here we have it broken down by age groups. In the age group zero to nine, there have been no deaths at all since the beginning of the scandemic, which is March last year, March 2020, sorry. Uh, yeah, March 2020. Uh, in the age group 10 to 19, zero deaths in all that time. Now, keep in mind that children 12 to 18 are being targeted with this shot now. They have absolutely no risk of dying from this illness. They have no risk of having serious complications as long as they're not interfered with. But they have serious risks of dying, of heart attacks, of permanent damage from the shots. From the age of 20 to 29, since the beginning of the scandemic, there have been two deaths, okay? 30 to 39, there have been a total of three deaths. 40 to 49, two deaths. 50 to 59, we're getting close to the age where people are being told that their risk of death from COVID is extremely high. 16 deaths in all of Australia. And 60 to 69, when we're told that your risk is incredibly high, there are a total of 40 deaths from COVID or with COVID, sorry, in that entire time. So the risk from the shots in these age groups is far, far higher than the risk of the disease. And yet we are still giving people these shots and telling them that they have to take them and now making them mandatory for certain people and certain jobs. Um, people need to stand up and fight against this because the government is literally killing citizens and we've got to not let them do that. They're there to protect us, not to kill us. This is an article that just came out. Um, COVID-19 coronavirus Delta variant has wrecked hopes of herd immunity, scientists warn. Now, Everybody knows about the big bad Delta variant that is so much more infectious than the other variants and the original COVID. Um, what has happened is that uh, a team at Oxford University, which has worked on the Oxford vaccine, has said that because of Delta variants and Keep in mind, the Delta variant, we're told, is more infectious but less deadly. Um, the Delta variant is much more likely to infect people who are jabbed with the COVID shot. And when they're double jabbed, they're even more likely to get it. If you are unjabbed, you are less likely to get it. So what is the point of the jab? And what these experts have said is that the fact that the Delta variant is infecting the vaccinated more than the unvaccinated means that we will never get vaccine-induced herd immunity because one variant after another variant after another variant are going to come out and the vaccine's simply not going to be able to uh, combat them. And what they said is we need to just learn to live with COVID like we live with the flu. 
and actually COVID in Australia and New Zealand, this is an article from New Zealand, has been far less deadly than the flu. Um, we were told that it was going to be the same as a severe flu year. Well, it's less than a severe flu, flu year. We have had less deaths and less hospitalizations than we've had from influenza. So um, this article sort of gives me hope that the uh, the so-called experts are finally throwing their hands up in the air and saying, we now see that this shot is not going to be the lifesaver that we thought it was. And hopefully, um, if enough people in Australia stand up and say no, the government will have to accept that reality. In Israel, they are now giving people the third booster dose of COVID shots because the first two haven't worked. 95% of the people hospitalized in Israel have been double jabbed. So they're saying, well, it's obvious the first two haven't worked, so we need a third one. Um, what other medical procedure do we see where, um, where failure of a treatment or preventative means that we need to not only keep using it, but use more of it. It doesn't make any sense. If you did that in business, you would be out of business in six months. But because the government is paying for everything with our tax dollars, uh, they can keep on supporting failures, which is exactly what they're doing. So I just wanted to pass this by you, and especially the information about the Vaxxed Bus Tour. Now, on Monday, on the AVN blog, there will be a page. Sorry, it'll be on Tuesday. My apologies. On Tuesday, after the first full day of the virtual Vaxxed Bus Tour, um, there will be a page up on the AVN blog, and I will do a quick live to let people know about it. This page will have a form on it that will allow you to enter your postcode, and it will give you the email addresses. It will actually not give you the email addresses. You'll be able to send the links to all the videos that ran the day before on the COVID reactions to your local members, sorry, your local federal members of parliament, all 12 of your state senators, the federal minister for health, the federal shadow minister for health, and the prime minister. You will be able to send those videos to them and in your own words, tell them why they need to watch this and why they need to stop trying to force people to take these untested experimental jabs and they cannot allow it to be made compulsory by any industry, any business, any government department. So I will be giving you that information further down the track, but I really need you to share our website, avn.org.au, and ask anyone you know who's had a reaction to the COVID vaccine or anyone you know whose family member has had a reaction to the COVID vaccine to please go there, click on the image of the Vaxxed bus. I'll show it to you again. And... Um, fill in a form to choose your time and day when you would like to tell your story. I need people to be brave. I need them to step forward. I need them to tell their stories, not just to show the government what is happening, what their policies are causing, but also to let people know what the outcome of COVID jabs can be and far too often are. There are so many people being killed or injured. I spoke with someone today who personally knows three people, one of whom has been in hospital for over 60 days um, after getting a COVID jab. She had her head cut open and her part of her skull removed so they could get at a blood clot that was in there. And she is now trying to learn how to speak again. This was a healthy person who got the jab. And... Um, Julie is asking, sorry, if I can update about shedding. Unfortunately, I can't, but I hope to be interviewing someone in the next two to three weeks who will be able to tell us a bit more about shedding. Um, and I think that it is a real issue. I do think that people who are around, people who've recently gotten the jab can and do get sick from that. Uh, and I do also think that there are things we can do to protect ourselves or at least try to protect ourselves uh, against that. So we will have more information on that, but I don't really have a lot more at this point in time. I'm sorry. 
So without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest on tonight's show. Uh, Her name is Dr. Jane Orient, and like I said, I have been following her for over 20 years. Uh, Back in the 1990s, she testified in the American Congress at a time when the hepatitis B vaccine was being added into the infant schedule for children in the first 72 hours of life. And um, she uh, is the executive director of an organization called the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, and they represent thousands of American doctors and specialists. So you would have thought that Congress would have listened to her, but they didn't. She showed that for children under the age of 12, the vaccine was many times more dangerous than an infection with hepatitis B would have been. And the fact is that hepatitis B, which is sexually transmitted and a disease of intravenous drug use, uh, is really not something that children that age are at risk of anyway. Very few children and very few newborns are having sex or using intravenous drugs. Um, she that's what brought her to my attention but over the years i've been following her and i've been following the aaps and their um their reason for being is to make sure that doctors put the well-being of their patients ahead of the well-being of the government of the pharmaceutical industry or even of the medical community itself and that is a, a that is a, a philosophy that I think all of us can get behind. And I wish there was an organization like the AAPS in Australia. Um, and in recent times, she has been very vocal about the COVID vaccination. The AAPS has always been against mandatory vaccination. They are not anti-vaccine, though they are called anti-vaccine, but they are not anti-vaccine. They simply don't believe that anybody should have to take a shot in order to um, either have a job, go to school, or get any sort of entitlement that everyone else is getting. So um, I hope that you will enjoy my conversation with Dr. Orient as much as I did. Just to let you know, um, I am on another computer on the AVN Facebook page. If you are on no compulsory vaccination, I won't be able to see your comments or respond to them. I will try to respond to all the comments uh, that are made while Dr. Orient is speaking on the AVN page. So if you are on no compulsory vaccination or on another page and you would like to get a response to a comment or a question, please come over to the AVN Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash avn.org dot au and um and watch this here and i will hopefully be able to get to your questions and answer them okay so without further ado welcome dr orient so welcome dr orient and thank you so much for joining us today on under the wire um i've been following your career for some time and uh you are currently the Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit, because we don't have an organization like this in Australia, what does the AAPS stand for? And um, what is it that the doctors who belong to your organization uh, represent? We were founded in 1943 to fight against one of the early attempts to bring about socialized medicine in the United States. We used to have an an international organization called IATROS, and we had some very excellent Australian members, and some from the UK and some from um, Switzerland, and that has pretty much uh, gone away at at this time. But APS still stands on the same principles that the physician should be working for the patient. That's the original oath of Hippocrates, Mm. that the physician is to prescribe for the good of the patient according to his best judgment, not for the good of the collective or the party in power or the managed care plan and or the good of society, whatever that means, and not according to some some dictated top-down guidelines or algorithms but according to what he believes is best for his particular patient, each individual patient. 
pretty radical idea in today's day and age, isn't it? Um, that doctors should it be really working is, for the good. Sorry. Yeah, it is pretty radical. I mean, the idea of freedom is pretty radical these days, too. That's very true and very sad. Um, let me ask you a question, because I've been trying to find this out in Australia. When a new doctor graduates from medical school in the United States, do they still swear to abide by the Hippocratic Oath? I think it is not used in more than one or two medical schools, if any. There are a number of oaths that we have on our website, APSonline.org. But interestingly, all of them lack the phrase, do no harm. All of them. And most all of them have in there a duty to society, which wow. the oath of Hippocrates lacks. And who is to determine think some what medical the duty is to society? You know, is there actually a greater good, greater than the good of the individual? Um, and yeah, in Australia, we have socialized medicine. And um, though it means that nobody goes bankrupt as a result of getting ill, it also means that we have absolutely no choice um, when it comes to our type of treatment, um, unless we pay out of pocket, which a lot of people do. And in the United States, um, I understand that you, you still do have some choice, but uh, the choice is still determined by how much you can afford to spend and what is approved and decided by the government to be standard of care. Is that right? Patients who are on Medicare, our socialized medicine for the elderly, have very little choice it's becoming more and more constrained. There are more and more plans to, uh, to terminate their lives prematurely or to cut off access to expensive care once they reach a certain age. If there's no code for it that the AMA cooks up, then the procedure virtually doesn't exist, that it can't be billed for. And since physicians are, are very tightly constrained on what they can offer to a patient when he becomes on Medicare. It means patient's not gonna get it. This is not medicine and it's not healing. Um, yeah, when did medicine become so political that uh, we can't really even look at the good of the patient anymore and whether or not a treatment has a basis in fact and in science instead of a basis in corporate interests. Uh, it's, it's, we've fallen very far from that Hippocratic tree. Uh, to a time when the, the good of the patient doesn't seem to really matter that much. With the AAPS, do you know about how many doctors in the United States are members of the AAPS? Well, we have several thousand. I, I believe we represent a lar much larger number of physicians who don't or aren't officially members. Mm. We're politically incorrect, and many physicians are very afraid to join anything that is out of what's considered the mainstream. But medicine became very politicized as soon as the government started to pay for it. I mean, whose bread I eat, his song I must sing. And very mm -hmm. soon after Medicare went into effect, prices just took off. And, and that was 1965. By 1974, there was the HMO Act passed that began this trend toward corporatization of medicine where instead of the government rationing care, which might have some political consequences, they were getting these private corporations to manage care. And they were doing it for profit. Yep. What could possibly go wrong? And, and 1978 is when compulsory vaccination came in in the United States. And um, your stance, the AAPS's stance against mandating um, medical procedures, including vaccination, was what first brought me to your attention. Uh, I remember clearly your testimony to the uh, Congress in the 19, I think it was 1990s, uh, about the hepatitis B vaccination at birth, which I think was one of the clearest and most articulate statements on the insanity of giving newborn infants uh, a vaccine against a sexually transmitted disease of um, both the sexually promiscuous and the uh, intravenous drug users. Um, what sort of, you know, hit back have you had from that stance against mandatory vaccination? We've gotten a certain amount of pushback from even our members 
but certainly from pediatricians who I think to them, vaccines are like a sacred cow. Mm. That is what the main thing that they do in their offices. Some of them have an interest in getting their, their patients 100% vaccinated because Blue Cross will pay them $400 a year for every vac fully vaccinated child, if and only if most of their practice is vaccinated. And that's why they're kicking children out of their practice if their parents want to turn down one or more vaccines and saying, oh, we're very afraid of having that child in our waiting room if he's not vaccinated. Mm. I don't know when there was a case of diphtheria in the United States and we have, nobody's died of measles since 2015. And, you know, if you're not vaccinated, you can't, you still can't pass along a disease if you don't have the disease. <laughs> well, that's just crazy. <laughs> and we see that so clearly with what's happening now with COVID. Um, I, I, I have been reading a lot of the information that you've been writing, and you've been very prolific writing about COVID. And one of the things that you're bringing up is something that I hadn't really thought of until recently, until yesterday, actually, because I spoke with someone. Um, we have a vaxxed bus in Australia, and we haven't been able to get out on the road for a while because there's so many lockdowns here. It's insane. Uh, we've had 14 deaths across the entire country since January. And where I am um, on the northern rivers of New South Wales has just gone into full lockdown yesterday. We're not allowed more than 10 kilometers from our house. We're only allowed one guest who doesn't live here. It's insane. But our Vaxxed bus is not on the road. So we're doing the Vaxxed bus interviews virtually over this same system that I'm speaking to you on. And yesterday I spoke with a woman whose mother died uh, five days after getting a COVID jab. And um, she actually went against her family and asked for an autopsy to be done. And she, the autopsy was done, but she's told that she won't get the results back for 18 months which seems slightly excessive to me. I've never heard of an autopsy taking quite that long when it's probably a fairly straightforward thing. But one of the things that you are writing about with COVID is where are the autopsies? Um, and I would love to have you address that. Why is it important to have these autopsies done when someone dies either from COVID or from the COVID jab? It's important to have an autopsy done even without COVID. And it used to be required for hospitals to keep their accreditation to have quite a substantial percentage of cases mm -hmm. autopsied because in a significant number of cases, the cause of death is missed. And even with our advanced imaging technology, it's about the same percentage of cases that contributed to death that were just missed. And with COVID, it's, it was really a disaster because we had all of these people dying on ventilators and we didn't, finally, some were done, I think in May of 2020 in uh, Germany and just a, few, a dozen of them. And they showed that most of these patients had blood clots, which had not been suspected. So they were pushing air into the lungs under pressure. The blood was not getting oxygenated because the blood wasn't getting there because of these blood clots. And there were big blood clots in the pulmonary, even in the pulmonary artery, which is very, very rare. And then tiny microclots in, in the other organs of the body, the heart, the kidneys, the brain. And so we didn't know that these people were dying of something we could have prevented with anticoagulants. Right. And, and because they weren't autopsying it. Now, I have heard, and I'm not sure if it's true, but I've heard that the World Health Organization had actually ordered that autopsies not be carried out when someone has died and the cause of death was put down as coronavirus or COVID-19. Is that true? Are you aware? No, it's not quite true, but, but they did have very excessive regulations, you know, to protect the pathologist. I mean, pathologists have a dangerous job and they're pretty good at protecting themselves. They were doing autopsies on, on Ebola, on tuberculosis, on all kinds of things, but they were not doing autopsies just because it was so onerous and so expensive. Right. And, and because the autopsies were not performed when people were dying of comorbidities with COVID, um, we were actually seeing that they were dying of COVID 
and the inflated the numbers. Is that right? I think there's a lot of financial incentive to sign a death out as COVID. The hospital gets more money. I mean, they even signed out deaths from a motorcycle crash as COVID because so they test everybody. And if they have a t positive test, it's just signed out as COVID. Right. So we don't really know how many people have died of COVID. The most accurate thing to look at is the all-cause mortality rate, which has really not been that that high and is pretty much back to normal throughout most of the world. Yes. Um, our our all-cause mortality in Australia up until the beginning of this year, we haven't seen the figures for this year yet. For some reason, even though they're normally put out monthly, they haven't been published for a while. But um, last year, as compared with the year before and the 10 years before that, our all-cause mortality has declined by a great deal. And this was during the height of the pandemic when we had a total of 900 deaths that were put down from COVID, almost all of them in our southern state of Victoria that had the strictest lockdown and the, uh, the most onerous regulations regarding, um, regarding all of this. So uh, it is something that I think the science needs to look at. And um, organizations like the AAPS, you have been publishing quite a bit on what needs to be done. What are your suggestions to governments who actually get to the bottom of whether COVID is, is causing the issues we've been told they are? I think we need to have more honesty in the reporting of statistics. The World Health Organization has already backed out on the, the polymerase chain reaction, which is being done um, with too many cycles. So they've been just every cycle, they double the, uh, they double the, the so-called virus count, but it is uh, it may just be a speck of dust from the floor, an old cold cold virus. And they've been, they've been cutting back on the number of cycle thresholds. But if you get a test back on a patient, it doesn't tell you how many cycle thresholds there have been. So we have had a lot of false positives. And, and if we cut that back to say 25 instead of 37 on people who are vaccinated, it will make the vaccines look a lot more effective than they actually are, especially with the unvaccinated people. We're still going with the excessively sensitive test. Yep. Yeah. But I think we do, we do need to do autopsies on these people who are dying after the COVID vaccine. They will say, well, it wasn't causally associated to the vaccine, but they don't really know what the cause of death was. So we need to be looking for the spike protein that the uh, vaccine hijacks your cells to make where where is that located is there inflammation around that is it causing damage to the lining of your blood vessel that causes these clots the shot has actually been called the clot shot by by one at least one pathologist because so many people were getting doing terrible neurological disasters as well as death because of the clotting that happens and it's not just with the AstraZeneca vaccine, but with all of the vaccines. Yes. The spike protein, my understanding is that it's actually toxic. I mean, it's one of the things that the COVID virus is supposed to um, use to actually cause symptoms in people it infects. So can you think of a good biologically plausible reason to make your body create this toxin in order to become healthy and to become immune to a virus, is there anything that you can think of that would make that make sense? Well, well we have been working on gene, genetic engineering for about 20 years, and it's been a dream that we can come up with a platform for vaccines mm -hmm. for emerging diseases so that if something comes out like a new strain of Ebola or something, we don't have to wait years to try to grow it in the laboratory. If we can sequence it and then we can engineer a messenger RNA to make it, we can just put the messenger RNA in the body and you make the antigen and then your body makes the antibodies to it. I mean, it sounds like a wonderful concept in theory. It just happens that the spike protein does a whole lot of damage all by itself, whether it's attached to the virus or not. Yep. So, and, and what is your opinion on, um, we had a recent uh, Senate hearing called Estimates and one of our politicians, Malcolm Roberts from One Nation, asked the head of the TGA, which is the Australian version of the FDA, 
um, whether this vaccine could potentially, the messenger RNA vaccine, we're using Pfizer, we just approved Moderna yesterday, but up until now, the only messenger RNA vaccine we had was Pfizer. And he asked, can it alter our native genetic structure, our code? Can it reprogram our code? And Professor Skerritt from the TGA gave a very interesting answer. He said, it is impossible for this vaccine to alter the genetic code. In fact, if it were able to alter the genetic code, it would be illegal to administer in any country around the world. What do you think about that answer? And what has your research shown you about the ability to change our genetic structure? I think it's probably just a lie because the whole idea of genetic engineering is to alter the genome. It's a process called transfection where you use viruses like the adenovirus in the, uh, in the AstraZeneca vaccine to get into the nucleus and to, and to alter the genome, to snip out parts of it and insert other parts of it. That's the whole idea of the genetic engineering that we've been working on assiduously for 20 years. Now, can the messenger RNA from Pfizer and Moderna do that? We do know that RNA can be used to transfect cells. There, is, there are reverse transcriptases in our body, and there, there are pieces of viral genomes integrated into our, G, our DNA. So theoretically, it is quite possible for this to happen. The messenger RNA, by the way, that they use has a couple things on the ends of it that make it much more difficult to break down. So it's not coming into your body, doing its job, and then disappearing. It may be persisting for quite a long time. So people like Paul Offit, who is a long-standing supporter for every vaccine, almost every vaccine under the sun, said there is a zero chance that, that your, of, uh, gen your genome being altered because these vaccines don't have in it all the other enzymes and things that would be necessary. But I think that is not true. And I don't think we're going to be able to find out about it until a lot more time has passed. Mm. And, and they were tested for such a short time and in such a small number of people uh, before they were released that uh, we probably won't know until it's too late, um, sadly. Now, it's my understanding that the Food and Drug Administration is going to be fast-tracking the approval of I think it's the Pfizer vaccine in the United States. Is that correct? And it might be approved as I soon think as that's next correct. Month. Yeah. Um, what yeah, they're under a lot of pressure to push this through. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the fact that the FDA is under pressure because their um, their reason for being is to make sure that all therapeutic goods used in the United States and all foods are used in the United States are safe and effective and not adulterated and they have fallen down so badly on that. So who is putting pressure on them to approve this? Is it the White House? Is it the pharmaceutical industry? Is it everyone in between? Or it may be an international organization. It could be the World Health Organization. It could be Bill Gates and his foundation. It could be the World Economic Forum. Pressure could be coming from all sides. You know, the FDA is by no means independent. There's a revolving door between the FDA and major uh, drug manufacturers. And same thing with the CDC. The CDC owns patents on vaccines. There are individuals there who make royalties. They have a huge vested interest in getting these things approved. How in the world? But there's, there's stuff that's not even scheduled to be done until the end of 2022 at the earliest. Yeah, well, I heard, and I don't know if it's true, but I heard that Pfizer is going to be given full approval in September. And once that happens, there will be mandating of the shots left, right, and center. Um, I, I personally don't consider these, um, I don't even know what to call them, these shots, jabs to be vaccines, um, because they don't really, uh, to my mind anyway, uh, match the definition of what a vaccination is supposed to do. Um, what do you think about that? Are they vaccines or are they not? Well, they, they just changed the definition of vaccine so they could call them that. A vaccine is generally a, a piece of the, of the pathogen or, the, or a weakened pathogen, and then your body makes antibodies to various parts of the, of the pathogen. But whereas these, 
there that's genetic material that's uh, tricking your body into manufacture something that looks like part of the pathogen it mm -hmm. is gene therapy by, by definition that's what it is yep yep the word therapy to me um, has a connotation that I don't think matches what this is doing. It's gene modification, I call it. But gene therapy is definitely um, one of the words that makes more sense than vaccination. Um, what do you see as a path forward? Do you see more doctors coming out in opposition to using a shot and mandating a shot that has not been fully tested uh, for the proper amount of time, or are they so afraid of standing out that they're not going to? I'm afraid that that um, they're all just following groupthink. They think you're anti-science if you raise any question about the vaccine. Certainly the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and a whole long list of organizations are fully on board. They're saying doctors have to lead the way Doctors have to get vaccinated themselves. Uh, maybe we're going to take your medical license away from you. If you even suggest to patients that there may be some cause for concern. Wow. Just the censoring and the standing between a doctor and their patient, um, which shouldn't be happening. Um, there are HIPAA laws in the United States, which we don't have in Australia. We do have medical privacy, but it's not quite as enshrined in legislation as you have in the U.S. How are uh, bodies like the AMA and the government getting around the HIPAA legislation that is supposed to protect a person's medical privacy? Well, HIPAA is supposed to protect your privacy, but it does not do that. It has never done that. HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Wow. And it has a privacy rule in it, but it really is a disclosure rule. Anything having to do with payment, operations, or treatment can be released to any authorized entity. There are millions of authorized entities. And the government and the public health pretext gives them access to pretty much everything that's in your record. And people, people have been so misled. That by, the, by the language that I think is deliberately deceptive. It is not a privacy rule. It's an anti-privacy rule. Wow. And, and people are not aware of that, obviously. I remember I'm American by birth, and I was um, out there a few years ago with my sister who had cancer. And uh, every time we went anywhere, I had to sign something, a HIPAA. Uh, and I think it was a release now that you talk about it. I was signing basically to let the hospital share her information with other parties. And I never thought about it at the time. I always thought, oh, how good. They're really protecting her privacy. Uh, no, they weren't. Were they? Well, they're protecting, they're protecting her from having her information released to her family or to somebody else who might have a good reason for it. It really has been a big obstruction for outside physicians, for family members to find out what's going on. There's all this pretense you know, we had to get rid of the, the board on which we wrote down the numbers of the patients who were in the operating room um, for privacy reasons. But everything that's in your record that's electronic can be, can be anywhere, could be easily hacked, certainly sent to all kinds of entities that absolutely do not have your best interest at heart. Yep, yep. Um, and Australia recently approved uh, the Pfizer shot for children between the ages of 12 and 18. Anyone 18 and up has been allowed to get it. Um, and they're trying to make it seem as if the 18 year olds are required to get it in the state of New South Wales where I am, but they had to backtrack on that because um, there is no ability at this point for the government to actually mandate that for anyone in school. But um, you have in the United States been using the shot on that age group for some time. What have the results been in the shot in that age group? I don't think we, we really know. I mean, the, the, young, the children were excluded from the early trials. Um, now they have been signed up for the trials. There have been a few cases of children dying, previously healthy children dying of blood clots. One particularly tragic case, his mother thought she was performing such such a uh, a good thing for society 
by by volunteering her child for the trial and her child ended up dead wow and are children at risk of serious sequelae and death from covid infection itself there have been a few who have died but the risk is very minimal there's very little evidence that they have been in the spreading the disease around either catching it from their grandparents or giving it to their grandparents most children for most children there there are no symptoms at all or something like a common cold mm. and to be sacrificing the children for the idea of protecting the great grandparents is just totally opposite from the way things are supposed to work i mean we old people are supposed to be protecting our babies not the other way around absolutely and i'm of the age to have grandchildren and i would far rather protect them than to think that they need to protect me um so to include children and now infants. Australia is one of the countries that Moderna is looking at doing tests on for children as young as six months of age uh, to see if the shot uh, is safe or effective. And I don't know how they're even going to test that without a control group. And I don't know what kind of parent would actually give their children up. But like you said, they probably think they're doing the right thing for society, for medicine, for health uh, by doing that. Um, when young infants, healthy young infants, do not have a real risk of dying or having a serious problem as a result of a COVID infection, um, to me that's a crime against humanity and I don't know why it's allowed to take place. Are they using the shot in children that young in the United States that you're aware of? Well, I think they're trying to get, get to the point to do that. I, I don't know how, how much it's being done now, um, but they are pushing to have the studies. The problem is when you have a disease that is so uncommon or so mild that it's hard to diagnose, how do you know whether your vaccine's working? I mean, do you expose the kids to the, to the pathogen? I mean, that is against the Nuremberg Code. That's against every tenet of medical ethics to expose people to a pathogen just to find out whether your vaccine works. But they did that in the early trials with COVID in the United States with the COVID shot. They actually exposed people to COVID. They may have even injected them with COVID. I can't remember now. I did read about that. And, uh, you know, it, it puts the lie to what we've been told all along that vaccines are assumed to be safe and effective and therefore it's unethical to leave people unprotected for the purpose of testing them. So um, at least that's what they say in Australia. I don't know if they say that in the United States. It's the reason for not having an unvaccinated control. Um, but in the United States, you did have an unvaccinated control in the early stages. What happened with that? Well, there was a, a big study that had 22,000 people in the vaccinated and in the unvaccinated group. And maybe 200 people or so in the unvaccinated group ended up uh, getting symptoms, mild symptoms, cold-like symptoms, and had a test for, for COVID and were diagnosed as having it. But you know, it, was, it was hard to call it a real placebo because the people who got the placebo didn't get sick, whereas a very high percentage of the people who got the real vaccine were sick, maybe enough maybe to be disabled for several days, unable to work. So there's probably a problem with reporting in there. Um, but even so, they, they claimed, okay, 200 people unvaccinated, a few, few people maybe were vaccinated, got it. This is 95% effective. Well, maybe the relative risk is that low but if you look at the absolute risk, because almost nobody got sick, it's around more like 1%. And I think pharmaceutical companies often do this. They use the relative risk to say our drug is so wonderful. And then they use the absolute risk when they're talking about the side effects. This yeah. is just dishonest. Yeah. So, um, so in the placebo group, the so-called placebo group, um, 200 people tested positive. Were there 22,000 in each group or 22,000 in total? 
I think 22,000 in each group, so 44,000 total. That's quite a quite. It a was a big study. study. Yeah. But part of the problem with it was that when when the disease is so rare, how I mean, how do you tell that it's really good? That's why there was talk about exposing people, and I guess you have evidence that they did that in some cases, but there was a big discussion about whether they could do that or not. Certainly in the huge study, it was not done. No, but they just, they just left people in the community. And I mean, COVID, SARS, is basically a cold virus. It causes the common cold. The symptoms that people were experiencing at the beginning of the outbreak, um, if you want to call it that, were not necessarily cold symptoms. Uh, people were reporting uh, low blood oxygenation and uh, loss of taste and loss of smell and other symptoms which were not common. Uh, I have heard a theory that in the beginning, the majority of the people who had developed those symptoms were people who had received um, the flu vaccination in 2019. And I'm not sure if that's true or not but that supposedly it could have been the side effects of the flu shot that people were experiencing and they were being told that it was COVID. Have you heard anything about that? No, I can't comment on that, but I have heard that people who got the influenza vaccine were more likely to come down with COVID, that most vaccines don't work that way. Most of them may maybe give you a little bit broader immunity, but in the case of the coronavirus, it seems to work the opposite way, that it actually facilitates infection mm. with the coronavirus. Yeah, that was a study done by the Department of Defense, and I think they found there was a 36% increased risk of developing a, a coronavirus infection if you'd had a flu vaccine. And yet, uh, I don't know if they did this in the U.S., Correct. but in Australia, they required anyone visiting anyone in uh, a senior citizen's home, in a, in a nursing home, or anyone who worked in those facilities to receive a flu shot. And you would think if the idea was to keep these elderly, more vulnerable people away from these infections, that would be the last thing you'd want to do. Did they do that in the U.S. as well? Were they pushing it at the very beginning? I think the flu shots are often mandated. Yeah, everybody in, the, in a senior's home has to get a flu shot. The, the, the personnel, the patient, it's never been shown that this decreases the problems that you have with flu, but it's one of those sacred cows. You have to get your flu shot every year. And I don't think that the results of this Department of Defense study were widely known, but I think that certainly this could have been a part of the reason why the mortality was so high in these places. Mm, that makes sense. And, and even if it's not widely known, what I have read time and time again is that um, this is a one and only study um, that has shown this, and therefore we shouldn't rely on the results. Even though it was a large study and it was conducted by the U.S. government itself, um, we shouldn't be relying on the results of this, and I haven't seen any follow-up to try and either uh, discredit it or uh, verify it uh, by other agencies. So you'd have to wonder why. Well, one study is enough if it uh, verifies your narrative, but it's never enough. I mean, hundreds of studies are not enough if they show that hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or some other out-of-patent drug has a significant beneficial effect. And is it legal in the United States for a doctor to write a prescription for ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine for COVID either as a preventative? Yes. It is. Okay. I thought it was illegal there. Oh, yes, it is. They tried to suppress this for a while, and there were some states that had draconian regulations against it, saying, we'll take your pharmacy license away. But those were rescinded. Our governor in Arizona just recently rescinded his order not to use hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis. But it's, it's always been possible for patients to get the drugs filled if their doctor will prescribe them, but a lot of doctors won't prescribe them. And, and the excuse was just amazing. We can't use, allow hydroxychloroquine to be used because our lupus and rheumatoid arthritis patients won't be able to get it. But it's deadly dangerous. <laughs> so if it's deadly dangerous for COVID, but the lupus patient is going to be deprived. It, I mean, it just really didn't make any sense. Unless your motive was to suppress early treatment so that we have 100,000 or more unnecessary deaths. 
And do you believe that people died because they didn't have access to these drugs? Oh, I'm sure they did. Because all the studies are showing a significant decrease in mortality, especially if they are used early before the patient ends up in the hospital. We are not even giving patients information about vitamin D. Even though there are lots of studies showing you're probably going to do well with COVID if your vitamin D level is okay, and you're much more likely to die if you're deficient. And most people are deficient, especially if they live in one of the higher latitudes, especially at the end of winter. It makes sense. It really does make sense. And but nutrition and Western medicine have always been enemies. It seems, you know, it's uh, and I'm not saying the AAPS physicians, I'm saying the AMA physicians, the real mainstream physicians. Uh, I've had doctors time and time again say to me that your nutritional status has nothing to do with your health. And it's hard to imagine that um, anyone who studied medicine in any way could possibly take that stance, and yet it seems to be a majority stance. Um, So I congratulate the AAPS for actually standing up for the rights of patients. Uh, It's wonderful to see and a a real breath of fresh air. So um, (laughs) the, uh, the resistance to any solution other than uh, a vaccine uh, has definitely cost lives, I believe. Um, and the idea that we don't even have an immune system that we can rely on, that our immune system is, uh, you know, simply nothing to do with whether we're going to deal, deal with this illness or not, um, is pretty incredible. How do you, how do you address this with the doctors who are members of the AAPS? Do you, are you a lobby group? Do you also lobby government to try and make things different? I know you write a lot, but what about your members? Well, we do have a a small lobbying presence and we do have an action network to let our, our members know when there's legislation or regulation coming up that they might have a a chance to influence. So we we do try to educate them in, in that regard. And we have a free booklet on our website, aapsonline.org, that has information about early treatment, about what the three phases of the disease are, about sequential multi-drug treatment, about the nutritional factors that are very important. And we maybe a million people so far have seen, have seen this book, but you're not going to get that information from the AMA or your local medical society. There, it's just your masks and your vaccines. Mm, or the media for that reason. Um, the media has been very good at covering things up like this. Uh, it's wonderful that you've had a million people reading that, and I will put links to your uh, articles that you've published about COVID and also your testimony uh, in the late 90s, was it, um, regarding the Hep B vaccine, because I just think that was brilliant, um, and also to the AAPS website. And if you have any other links that you'd like to send, I'll be sure to put them up with this as well. Uh, do you feel like you're fighting a losing battle? Do you see any hope for people to wake up and see what's happening? Oh, absolutely. We, we have to have hope. We, we cannot abandon our patients and neglect every opportunity to, to uh, tell them. And I think more and more patients are calling our office. More and more of them are accessing the information. More of them are putting pressure on their physicians. It's just really outrageous that so many people are calling me saying, my doctor will not even talk to me about this. Why? Why won't they talk about it? I think part of it's fear. I mean, they are afraid of getting fired or it was like Peter McCullough actually got sued by his former employer. Did he? Um, they won a million dollars in damages from him because he allegedly talked about his affiliation after he had promised not to. <laughs> you wouldn't want to be affiliated with the truth as a university, would you? <laughs> uh so much for academic freedom. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. Is there, is there? I, I I see the American frontline doctors. I see AAPS. I see um, doctors around the country and around the world. Reiner Fulmich, who is, um, I think he's both a doctor and a lawyer. Um, there are so many high-profile people emerging now who are talking about this issue. Are you working together? Are you networking with each other and uh, and sharing information and support? 
Oh, we try to stay informed about what other groups are doing. Reiner Filmy, I believe, is not a physician. I think he's just a lawyer. Ah, um, okay, sorry. He calls himself doctor. Yeah. It might just be a PhD. Yeah. He's not a doctor of medicine, I don't believe. No, okay, yeah. So um, how can people who are watching this help? What do you suggest they do? Can they help the AAPS if they're not physicians? Uh, can they... What steps do you advise them to take in the U.S. and over? They should go to our website, aapsonline.org. They can join us. Lay people can join us. Yep. They can be on our, our email list to get our updates. They have free access to all the information in our peer-reviewed journal and our newsletters and our op-ed pieces and our press releases and, and, and particularly need to get this book because I think it will... It will t it, answer some questions and certainly let you know the questions that you need to raise. Yep. And I saw you testified recently again to Congress. Um, Senator Johnson called you to testify and he was incredibly respectful. I have great respect for that man. Um, he's taken a lot of uh, flack himself for doing what he's doing. Uh, are there other politicians in Washington who you think are worth working with, worth contacting for people to give support to other than Senator Johnson? Unfortunately, very few. I mean, Senator Rand Paul, mm. who is a physician himself, yep. has raised some good questions about, about the vaccines, for example, and a support of in, in general of medical freedom. Um, but it, the situation is really pretty dismal with the, with the politicians, but also with the administrative, the executive agencies like the CDC that are supposed to be supposed to be the, the you know the source of accurate information and protecting us against against disease mm. I've seen some um, some interviews with the new head of the CDC I forget her name but um, if ever there was a bought corrupt uncaring person I, I, my personal belief is that she is the epitome of all of those things, and the CDC is and has been for quite some time rotten from the top down. Um, the CDC whistleblower uh, situation, when that came out, we all became aware of exactly how corrupt that organization is. Uh, are there any other organizations uh, at the government level that you think would be willing to listen to these issues that people can contact. I, I just think that people, the grassroots is going to be how this is won. And people need to stand up, but they need to know how to stand up also. Um, is there anyone in government, any departments in government that you think people should contact in the United States? Um, we are busy directing people in Australia, but a lot of Americans do watch this show. So what, what do you recommend they do? Um, well, I can't think of any anyone in the government that you can contact to help you, but I think you should contact all of them, and and to complain and to and to inform them about the devastating harm that their policies are doing. There is no evidence from anywhere in the world that lockdowns have helped, for example, but they have caused hideous damage mm. to livelihoods, uh, to people's education to people's mental status, um, to the you know, suicide rate, drug abuse rates, and so on. But I think that, may, that they have to hear from their constituents constantly about, they, instead of calling us anti-science, point out that they're the ones who are anti-science, who are disregarding all of the evidence that's being presented to them. Yeah. The name calling is outrageous. When I was doing some research on some of your recent writings, um, I saw articles from Breitbart of all places and the New York Times calling you the anti-vax, anti-climate uh, climate denier, uh, Dr. Jane Orient. And I'm like, why do they have to call names? Why do they have to uh, put that out there to make people have a preconceived notion about you? Why, why do you think they're doing that? Well, if you have reason and logic and evidence on your side, you use that. And if you don't, you resort to name calling or pounding on the table or 
threats and that kind of thing. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So um, before we finish up, Dr. Orient, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to discuss? No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I think that patients need to understand the importance of having a physician that you can trust and that you can rely on who is working for you. And you have to be willing to support that physician. But so many patients are only concerned about, are you on my managed care network? Are you on my health plan? Will the insurance pay the bill? If I have to pay more than $5, I don't really care about you that much. But you really, you, people need to understand the tremendous impact that these managed care for-profit, rationing for-profit organizations have, what their incentives are. They do not care about the patients. They grind down and try to destroy any of their physicians or other clinicians who go against, who go against that. So I think physicians and patients need to stick together and they need to, uh, to understand that just because it's free coming from the government doesn't mean it's good. Exactly. And there are many people in Australia who choose to pay for their medical care uh, or their natural health care because they don't want to be part of that system. So um, very good advice from you. And I hope that doctors listening to this will stand up and realize that their first and probably only loyalty should be towards the patient in front of them and not the people who are paying them to do something that they don't think is in the best interests of their patients. So, yeah. It's also in patients' economic best interest to have an independent physician too. They are paying huge amounts of money or their employer is for these managed care plans and all the money gets skimmed off the top to the profit and to the, uh, the, the managers and so on, that, that private medical care is usually very affordable. Right, right. Okay, well, people need to be aware of that and do their investigations, and I think that's very, very important that they do. All right, Dr. Orient, thank you once again. I really do appreciate it. I will have links up to everything you've talked about here, and uh, I would love to see you again after this whole COVID thing is over so we can talk a bit about health and, uh, and how Very good. people can, can guarantee it and, and support it and get it back. So thanks again. I do appreciate your coming on to Under the Wire. Been great to talk to you. Thank you.